What if I told you there were simple little things you could do that would double your revenues and profits? Sound too good to be true? At the top level, doubling your business can seem like a monumental task. Where do we start? What do we do? In this new book, Cadence, author Pete Williams breaks it down to just seven things that drive growth, then walks us through the process of finding small, consistent wins in each one. Before you know it, these small improvements across your business quickly add up. If you've ever struggled to grow or just don't know where to start, this episode is for you. Pete shares some of the mistakes he was making in his company, many of which will probably sound familiar, and what he focused on to turn things around. As you're listening, I encourage you to think about where each of these seven levers are in your business. Oh, and stay tuned through the end to hear how you can win a copy of Cadence for yourself. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show. Your new book just dropped. It's called Cadence, and it's a fictional story that uses a bike shop as a case study and using what you call seven levers to grow your business with small incremental improvements or 10% gains. Is there anything you'd add to that with regards to the book and the subject matter? No, you pretty much nailed it, mate. It is. It's a, it's a fictional story based on a, some true events um, with a bike shop that was literally across the road from my uh, my company's offices um, as I was training for my first Ironman. So the book's got sort of that as the foundation. But as you do, when you put something together, you kind of get a bit of creative license and you add in other stories and other conversations to really get the story across. And yeah, it's, it's been fun and it's been well received and uh, yeah, hopefully it's helping a lot of people. It was probably easier to come up with real world quote unquote examples when you could make them up as opposed to having to go out and find real true case studies. Yeah, look, someone referred to it the other day as it's it's a business book for people who don't normally read business books. Uh, and I thought that was really cool because the, the book started off as a traditional nonfiction business book. It was sort of going down that path, you know, the, the lessons and the stuff that we've learned in our business and the failures we've had and how we kind of adjusted and pivoted away from those. And I just wasn't feeling it. It was just very bland, very kind of textbooky. And I went, hang on, you know, there's some stories in this that actually have happened. Let's let's base it around that. Some of my favorite business books, you know, Built to Sell and a few other ones are that sort of parable style. So we kind of went, all right, let's uh, let, let's move towards that. And then I think it's a much more engaging story. Yeah, it, it's it has got a little bit more leeway to sort of get creative with sort of some of the stories and the lessons that we, we try and impart throughout the book. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you from a personal standpoint, what one of the things that I really liked about it, it just dawned on me as you're talking now, is that it's not overly repetitive. There's some books that they just beat the same concept over and over and over again. And this one, you, it flows through it. It's such an easy read. And then it's and then I like that you recapped all those seven levers at the very back. So it's super quick reference on one of the last pages. So it's literally like a page and a half long. And it kind of like it jogs the memory on everything that you should have learned from the book. Um, and so this book yep. will be available on or is available on what Amazon and bookstores and everywhere. Yeah, literally, it's everywhere. The um, the the original release or the first release of the book is hardcover, um, and then we've got the Kindle and paperback and audiobooks coming sort of over the next couple of months. And there was a bit of strategy around that. You know, the Wall Street Journal bestseller lists is purely hardcover focused. Uh, they only care about your hardcover book sales. They don't really worry about paperback and audios. So with the publishers, there was the, the conscious decision to let's actually you know put a positive constraint around this and just release the first edition in hardcover uh, to give us the best shot at hitting the Wall Street list purely because, um, you know, if we had paperback and other things, people might go and buy other versions of the book initially and that might, you know, skew or diminish the, the power we have in the launch to um, hit the Wall Street bestseller list because all your pre-sales, this is something that's, uh, I found quite interesting with in the book world, is that all your pre-sale orders effectively count as your first week's worth of orders. 
So all the pre-orders we, we, we generated, they actually counted in that first week of orders, which obviously helps. Um, you know, you can really have like six months worth of sales classes at seven days when the book comes out, which obviously helps, you know, hopefully hit the, the Wall Street Wall Street lists and things like that. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I, I feel like we could do a whole episode with you and a couple other people about book launches and the strategies behind it because mm. it's, yeah, it, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes apparently that nobody knows about. Um, so we'll yeah. put a link to the book, at least on Amazon because that's easy in the show notes, along with the the offer you created for us, which lets people get, if they buy the book through that link, they will get a free audiobook version. So thank you very much for doing that. Yep, and, no and, problem at all. And I should say that if, if you're listening and you want that deal, you should click on it pretty soon after this episode comes out because that, that deal will only go on for a couple of months after uh, since the book launch. So um, get on it. All right, so let's dig into the levers. Um, but before we kind of go to the specifics, I, I wanted to let people know why they should buy what you're selling. You know, not the book. I mean, like your <laughs> message, right? So you hosted the PreneurCast podcast and you've had some pretty big names as guests. You've written a couple other books. You run a marketing firm. Yeah, you know, like, but what is your your background? How did you get to the have the knowledge that you have, and why should people take your advice? Yeah, sure. Well, probably because I've failed a whole bunch, and <laughs> hopefully, I can shortcut that for people. So, my core business in Australia, I think people have probably realised with the accent, I'm I'm from down under. Um, so, my core business here is in the telecommunication space. So, we've got about four or five businesses in the group, uh, a couple of e-commerce stores with a phone system. Um, sales and support company, uh, a phone billing services business. So we've got a, a range of businesses uh, in the group there. I've been involved in everything from a finger food catering company to a retail outdoor gear store. So I've kind of had my hand in a whole bunch of pies uh, for the last sort of 15 years, selling real world stuff to real people. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm in the trenches every day, you know, dealing with staff, dealing with customers, dealing with generating you know, leads and, and conversions and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I think, you know, we've done some really, really stupid stuff over the years and, and stumbled on some really smart things, I guess. And that's kind of, you know, my mum was a teacher. I've got that in my blood and that's, you know, the book. It's not a, a profit center for me. It's not sort of some sort of, you know, lead generator for a core business where we sell massive consulting services or anything like that, you know. It really, if you buy the book and you want to buy something else, you pretty much got to buy a phone system. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I'm in the trenches. That's my focus. The book is just something that is out there to kind of, you know, share our story, share what we've learned, and hopefully help other small business owners along the journey. Because I think, you know, for us at least, and I know other people, you know, you open your doors in the morning and there's a lot of stress of, you know, well, what am I going to work on? How do I focus? What's my my roadmap of attention when I'm trying to grow my business? And yeah. hopefully that's what the book does helps. Yeah, and that's honestly like that's sort of the same goal I have with this podcast and the the website, which mm. is is because like I've done a lot of stupid things too. I mean, we all have. It's I feel like man, like the things I did that were dumb, whether it was wasting money or whatever, like they're all things that other people have done before. If somebody had just said, "Hey, you know, that's kind of a stupid <laughs> thing. Like you shouldn't do that," and here's why, like I would have been way more receptive. I don't need to learn everything the hard way, and so I'm hoping, you know through this and everything else we're doing that we can save people a lot of time, money, energy, you know, pain. Exactly. I like it. Um, so the seven levers, and we're going to explain what those are in just a second. Are they an amalgam of lessons you've kind of learned from your guests on your podcast when you had that and from your own business or like, where did they come from? Yeah, well, probably about 12 years ago when we started the, the core telco business, you know, originally it was selling and installing phone systems still is a big part of the business, but that was, where we started and what what happened is we my business partners and I we're not telco guys you know we sort of stumbled into that space um, fundamentally you know, long story short is we realized at that point you know Google was taking over the office manager the receptionist who was given the task to get some quotes for some phone systems they were no longer going to the yellow pages or you know things like that going to Google and we had a little bit of a, a um, and look into that world and we, we knew some people in that space and we realized that you know, there was no one owning Google, so to speak, in the telco phone system space. So we, you know, basically pivoted an existing business into there and did extremely well. You know, we were very much a sales and marketing company that just happened to sell phone systems. We did very, very well generating the lead. We were converting those sales really well. And then what we were doing in our naive wisdom, I guess, at the time was literally then handing the client off to subcontractors. You can probably think, you know, or read that as competitors. 
in that we then go, okay, we've made the phone system sale, we've been paid, let's give that phone system to a subcontractor to go and install. And that was all very, very well and good for the start. But then what we realized, we hit a glass ceiling very, very quickly in that, you know, it's pretty obvious in hindsight when you step back and you know, look at the forest from the trees that, well, if someone wanted to, you know, expand their system in the future, buy more handsets, get more service and support, who are they going to call? Are they going to call the people who basically just took their order? Or are they going to call the company who turned up, gave them the training, gave them the, the love, the installation and the support? And obviously the latter. So what we realized very quickly is that, you know, all we were really focusing on was sort of, you know, just a couple of elements that drove profit in the business. So we sort of sat down and went, okay, you know, where's this glass ceiling? Can we identify it? What's causing some, you know, growth to, to stabilize and not continue how it was? And that's where we kind of started looking at, okay, what is it that drives profit in every business? What's driving profit in our business? Where are the gaps? And sort of, you know, over a period of time, we kind of identified that, well, there's really only seven things that drive profit, you know, and it's such a cliche number. I really hate seven because, you know, okay. seven dwarfs, seven habits, seven secrets. It's a bit overused. But that's what we found. We found the seven things that drive profit. And we were really good at about three or four of them. Um, but the other sort of three or four, we were just, you know, ignorantly ignoring. Uh, so we started working really hard on that. And and then during that process as well, we figured out this 10% win thing. And that kind of what drives our focus now, you know, when we are working on the business, what's our framework and, and this seems to be it. And it's been quite powerful for us over the years and in a range of different spaces and, and niches and niches and verticals. And, uh, you know, it, it's continued to be the driver of our, of our success, so to speak. All right. Well, that is a great time then to tell us what are the seven letters. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, look, I, I think, you know, the, the real powerful thing is in this 10% wins, the 10% gain stuff you, you mentioned earlier. You know, the seven levers, I think, once you kind of hear them and, and see them, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of obvious. Yet, a lot of people aren't using it as their focus. So, that's kind of the big asterisk around this. So, you know, it really comes from the customer journey in that when someone is going through um, your business, what what does it look like for them? And this is the same for every business. You know, whether you're a, a retail bike store, whether you're an e-commerce, you know, retailer of some description, you're an online SaaS provider. So, the seven things are: first thing is suspects. You know, these are the people who come to your website, walk into your store. These are the the the, the tie kickers, the lookers. Then you've got your prospects. What percentage of those suspects are actually seriously interested in buying from you? How many people actually sit down and try on a pair of shoes? How many people actually you know, download your lead magnet uh, on your website, take up your free trial, get, get a quote from you? you know, there's a massive difference between suspects and prospects in the way you talk to them, the language you use. And I think so many businesses just call them all leads and put them in the same bucket. And I think that's a massive issue from a marketing and communication standpoint. So suspects prospects then you've got conversions what percentage of those prospects actually actually open up their wallet give you their credit card and become a client or a customer you've got your average item price now, what is the average items uh, the price of the items that you sell to these people what's your average items per transaction do they buy a pair of shoes and some shoe cleaner or a pair of socks do they buy your core product plus the upsell you offer you know, what are the additional items you're currently selling? It's the it's the overused "Would you like fries?" <laughs> cliche equation. It's overused, but it's true. You know, where, what, how, and what are you systematizing to actually ask? Would you like fries with that? You've got your transactions per customer. How often do they come back and buy from you again? And then finally, what is your overall operating margins? You know, what is the gross margins of your business or even the net margins of your business that, that drives the profit that you get to keep? Because in, in most circumstances, uh, you know, the business is about profit. You know, even World Bicycle Relief that you've spoken to before and about on this show, you know, they are, you know, a charity, so to speak, yet they still are driven by a profit model. You know, you spoke about that quite a bit, which I found fascinating in that, you know, even these charities are still profit-driven to a certain extent in the way they operate because the more profit they have, the more they can actually then donate or give to the underlying uh, cause or, or support. So they're the seven things. You know, they're the things that really drive the profit in a business. And I think, you know, I sort of mentioned it before, a lot of businesses go, or business owners, yeah, look, I, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I've heard that before. But could you identify right now what you're doing in your business in each of those areas to drive growth individually. Not, I'm trying to grow my business overall. How do you right now grow your average items per sale? How do you grow your transactions per customer? What systemated, automated things do you have in place to really drive those sort of um, uh, areas in, in the business? 
Yeah, and, and then how are you implementing them? How are you training your staff to carry them out? It, it, there's a lot to it, and you cover all yeah. that in the book, which is good because it's yeah, you're right. Like having it kind of written down is that first step. Having somebody say, "Look, these are the things you need to concentrate on," because there's, I mean, heck, I I hadn't thought about half of those things personally. And so mm. it, it is put in there. And then the other thing I like about it is the, the 10% gains thing is, you know, for people who hopefully will get it, but haven't read it yet. They, the concept is that if you can make just a 10% gain in each of those seven things, you're what, like doubling your business and no yeah, time, right? It blew our mind when we kind of stumbled across this. I said before, my mom was a teacher. She was a math teacher. So she um, drilled into me the importance of math and, and looking at numbers um, which, you know, is a whole other story. We didn't do that very well in the business early on, but we, you know, now we're very much focused on profit. But yeah, the 10% wins thing, that really is what blew our mind and really drives the power of this in that when you speak to most business owners, you know, about growing their business, it's all about, you know, give me the good leads. Where's the new leads? I want more leads. It's all about, you know, growing the top end of your funnel. That's how you grow the business in most people's focus is. And, you know, trying to double anything is damn hard. You know, trying to double your traffic, even trying to double your sales conversion rates, whatever, you know, are some of the drivers that you may be aware of. If you think about doubling your business, most people think about just doubling one area. And it's massively hard. And, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Yet, if you actually do the math on this and go, okay, all I'm going to look at is getting seven 10% wins. And that's what I'm going to focus on and let the compounding effect actually drive the, the profit growth because you know going from a thousand visitors to your website to eleven hundred, growing your conversion rate from ten percent to eleven percent, increasing your average items per sale from one point two to one point three two, they're very small incremental gains that you know and we can love to talk about some some examples of how easy it is is that you could do these things individually and then the compounding effect is your profit doubles and I think that gives a lot of business owners freedom in that takes the pressure off you know you, you read the you, you hear some great podcast interviews you read some of those you know the, the blog articles and it's all about how i drove a hundred thousand people to my website in 35 days and how i tripled my email base in 16 hours and some of these ridiculous case studies that are true and work but they're the outliers you know and i'm like well most businesses aren't outliers most things you do i'm all about the middle of the bell curve what's realistic what's sustainable and what's achievable uh, and that's how we grow our business it, it is that framework for us yeah and the other thing i like about the 10 percent is that putting that very specific number on there that 10 percent it not only seems like a small amount that's attainable but it's more of a concrete concept than just saying hey just make incremental gains or take baby steps you know there's actually a number <laughs> to measure against right and that's yeah that's what a lot of people do because when you have these abstract concepts of well i just need to grow everything a little bit then you have like nothing to measure against. And so it's just, <laughs> then you forget about it the next day and then you're right back where you started from. I think one of the, if you hit the nail on the head there is that I think I've heard this a lot, which is it's, it's really cool is that people I speak to about this sort of philosophy for one of a, a better term, it sounds a bit wanky, but you know, philosophy is that they're like, yeah, you know, I tried AdWords a couple of years ago for my business and it only really boosted our, you know, traffic by seven or eight percent so i thought it was a waste of time so i stopped doing it or you know historically you know we tried to implement something in, in the business and it and it only boosted our transactions per customer by you know 13 percent. so i didn't think it was worth worth sustaining and it's like well hang on well stop 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 in, in this framework in this context you know anything close to a 10 percent win above or below by a little bit is actually a good result and it really helps, I guess, reset the expectations of business owners um, because, yeah, you know, you're normally used to seeing all this crap on Instagram and, and social media and the web about, you know, how people got massive wins with small things and that's the way you grow your business and all that sort of shenanigans. This is no, – it's more of a realistic like, no, no, it's okay. Small boosts can can really compound it to massive wins in the bottom line of the business and that's – you know, it's a framework that we operate our business on. It's like we sit down every month and we pull the team together and we say, okay, in this business unit, this month, we're working on this lever. All right, let's brainstorm. Let's create. How do we get our 10% win here? And we come up with a strategy and we implement it. And then we continually measure it and make sure it's sustainable. And then we keep cycling through this, you know, pardon the pun, you know, build cycle. You know, it is about building your business and cycling through these seven levers over 
and over in a repeated way. Yeah, which brings up another topic. It's not just the compounding effect of getting a 10% gain or whatever in each of the seven levers, but it's it's not like you can only make one 10% gain, right? Like let's say you, you grow your, your the top of your funnel, just your, your prospects list by 10%. Well, then you can grow it by 10% again and then again. And so you get, mm. you know, you go from 1,000 to 1,100 and then 1,100 to what, like 12, 21. 20 or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like, and it keeps compounding. So that's, it's important for people to keep that in mind too, is that you don't have to stop at one 10% growth point. No, I think too is that, one of the the other really interesting things is that, you know, we've got again talking about doing stupid stuff. One of the things for us is that when we, well, when people work through this almost for the very first time, they often find like a first round ten percent win in every category just by realizing silly stuff they're doing or they forgot they're doing or they forgot about in that it's not about having to be creative necessarily at least the first time you cycle through each of the levers is you know in our business adwords is a big and has been a big driver of um new suspects for us for years you know so suspects is what you know the the adwords drives and then we get them to get a quote that's when they become a prospect they buy they become a, a you know a customer a conversion and so forth but we run adwords so it was a holiday weekend here this is a few years back but it was a holiday weekend here so we paused a, a big chunk of our adwords campaign because the sales guys weren't going to be around on monday and tuesday so we paused that part of the adwords campaign and we all had a nice long weekend came back feeling very festive and forgot to turn the adwords back on so it was for a significant period of time that you know our leads had dipped um because the adwords were paused and we hadn't and we didn't have anything to track against or measure what it should have been and there's the stories i hear about people who have done similar things that and when they walk through the seven levers for the very first time they kind of identify what it is their business is doing they realize that their staff stopped asking would you like fries with that because yeah it's part of what we train them to do but we train them in the first week of starting and then we forget to measure it or you know oh we've got an email order auto receipt auto responder sequence that drives repeat businesses you know people come on they become a customer we put them into this email sequence and you know these emails hit them over a period of time to entice them to come back and buy from us yeah but our credit card expired six months ago and we forgot to renew the account like it sounds ridiculous but you know there's so many examples of this you know someone uh, I, I didn't know i know now got a, an advanced copy of the book he runs a um Really cool business. So it's like a bar, you know, hire a barman. So if you're having a party, you can basically hire him. He comes in with the kegs and the beer and the table and basically acts as the barman for your party. Anyway, he got a, an advanced copy of a book through a friend. And I heard from him that he saved $20,000 to his bottom line within seven days. Wow. He was just like, he started looking at going where some of his expenses because he didn't really manage them properly. And he realized there was some stuff that he doesn't use anymore that he was still paying for. And like bang, 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 cut them all off and 20 grand to his bottom line just because he started measuring and looking at this. It didn't create anything new, didn't come up with some sort of creative way to increase his margins. He just started measuring and monitoring what was going on. And just as he went through that first phase, he was like, holy crap. <laughs> you know, it's really cool. And, you know, everyone thinks they're not making mistakes, but everyone knows they are. Um, and you, it's it's quite surprising some of the stuff you can actually pick up just, yeah, by just by looking it through. Yeah. yeah. So are there any particular industries where you see this type of uh, program working really good like working the best yeah well look you know i think you know there's retail is a, is a big space this works on it's very very clear and very easy to identify your seven levers uh you know online it's again online is very much driven by metrics you know the good thing about these seven levers is that the core levers that drive your profit they're not vanity metrics that people get distracted by so you know online sasses e-commerce is really handy um so there's some of those sort of industries where it has the, the movement that is the seven levers or 10% wins has kind of really taken off. Yet, I, I, it does fit with every industry. You know, there's, there's not a business industry that I've, I've come across yet where this doesn't really fit because, you know, every business you are getting customers in, in the door, so to speak. You're trying to convince them to put their hand up and identify as qualified prospects to sell to. You're then making the sale. You're trying to sell them the most expensive stuff that fits their needs. You're trying to get them to buy as many of your offerings as possible. You're trying to get them to come back again. Like that's just essentially every business's basic customer journey when you map it out. So, you know, yeah, retail, e-com, information marketing, SaaS for sure, you know, online services. Uh, you know, there's definitely a big fit for for most industries once you take the time to to kind of sort of try and, you know, capture what you're doing and, and clarify how it fits you. 
Yeah, cool. So how long should it take for somebody to see that first 10% gain in something tangible that, like, you know, something tangible in that you see it in your bank account, so like sales growth or something? Yeah, good question. Well, look, you know, the thing is, you know, every 10% win makes an impact. You know, the example before from the, the bar tender guy, who, he made a massive impact in, in a week. You know, but some businesses, like one I heard of recently, um, uh, they're a mechanic and they um, they bought this mechanic um, business a few years ago and they there was a bunch of signage in, in the warehouse. They were in an industrial estate. So it's, you know, a very warehousey sort of industrial estate. So there was some A-frames and some outdoor signage that was in the in the business shed, so to speak, when they bought the business. And they moved in there um, a couple of years ago and went, well, you know, we're in an industrial state. You don't really get that much drive past, you know, passing by traffic. So they'd never, ever decide to put the A-frame out the front because they thought an A-frame out the front of a mechanics in an industrial state is not going to generate, you know, exposure and, and new suspects. So they kind of ignored it for a while. They read the book and they went, oh, Okay, well, let's give this a shot. You know, let's let's try it. it doesn't hurt. Um, so they they put the A-frame out the front and got three or four. I got an exact number, three or four new clients within 24 hours because they just you know tried something. So you know, it, there's every business is slightly different. You know, you can turn an AdWords campaign on in four hours. You know, you can if you're a, a local dentist or a small business, you know, setting up an AdWords campaign just targeting sort of you know 10 miles around your your business and just the keywords you're after. You know, it can make an impact. You know, there's a business that I've worked with for quite a while. They're a boutique motion picture investment broker. It's a damn mouthful. But basically, they're, you know, they help wealthy people invest in um, uh, indie films, which is really cool. But, you know, from them, it's like not many people are going out on Google and searching for film investment. It's right. not really the thing people <laughs> are going after. So their, their whole lead generation um, play is they're doing a lot of cold calling, a lot of direct mail, a lot of, you know, targeted stuff to high-end wealthy individuals they can identify. Yet we sort of said, well, let's try an AdWords campaign because there's going to be some people, not a lot, but there's going to be some people who are, you know, interested in film investment. So we created an, a very targeted AdWords campaign. I think it had like four or five keywords in it, you know, really tight. And they were getting, you know, all they ever got was one or two or three clicks a day. It wasn't much at all, but that was enough to get them a 10% boost in inquiries and suspects and prospects in a, in, a, in a month. So it doesn't have to be stuff that's going to generate you tons and thousands of things. It's like, well, AdWords campaign took, I think, two and a half hours to set up, and it's now generating them 10% extra in inquiries a month. So, you know, putting in an email sequence to, you know, get your customers to come back and buy again. Spend, you know, spend tonight in front of the bachelor's commercials. Grab your laptop out, write, write a bunch of emails to people, set them up in an autoresponder sequence. You can do it while you're watching crappy, you know, reality TV. Some of this stuff doesn't take massive efforts to do because we're only looking for a 10% win. You know, we're not trying to triple, quadruple anything. We're not trying to be Babe Ruth and hit home runs. All we're trying to do is just get on base over and over again. And uh, that's what I keep drilling down is, and drilling into is that, yeah, don't stop trying to, you know, be the the at the front of the peloton trying to, you know, just get in the pack and, and just, you know, ride along and just get those small wins across across the line every time. Yeah. And I want to say just because, like, I think of autoresponders and I've set up a few email autoresponders and drip campaigns is that if you have no idea what we're talking about, it's it's uh, it can sound daunting and seem like, oh, my God, now I have to go learn all of that. And that's becomes one more roadblock to doing it. Almost any whoever's doing your marketing or social media or stuff can do that for you probably very easily and quickly and more efficiently than you can. Just tell them this is what we want to do, which is, you know, and if you don't even know an autoresponder or drip campaign, it's just say, hey, what is this? I think we need it. And somebody can explain it to you. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's just an automated series of emails that go out to people at a preset time so you say okay customers buy my product and i want to send them these series of emails at day one at day seven at day 30 at day 90 and you just have that set up and you know when people buy from you you put them in that that sequence and then they just automatically get hit with these you know little automated marketing and um yeah again these are the types of examples that don't take long to implement it's just it's just what's a what's a quick thing i can do that's sustainable and automated to get to me a small 10 percent boost and I think that takes the pressure off a lot of people. And it's like, you don't have to go and 
craft 50 emails and make this massive campaign, just at least something going out there to remind people to come back and buy from you again and renew their service or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just going to try and give an example, but that's exactly a, a great way for it. Is <laughs> Cut you off. Yeah, like, like you said, like using the bike shop example, right? Like so if somebody buys a new bike in 30 days, they're reminded to bring it in for their checkup. And the chances of them buying something else while they're in there are probably pretty good. So it's just ways of reminding people that they might need to top up something or come back in for whatever. Exactly um, right. So when somebody's somebody's looking at this, they're like, all right, because you've said focus on one lever per month. Is there one that's maybe easier or better to start with than others for somebody who's just going to get going on this program? Mm, good question. I'm going to give you a really annoying answer and say no. <laughs> um, yeah, I think everyone goes straight for suspects. You know, effectively, it's traffic. You know, everyone's like, give me the good, give me the good leads, get me new traffic. So everyone kind of often goes to suspects because obviously it's the first one <laughs> people right. like to start in order or secondly because it is that default i need to grow my business i need more of the good leads yet i actually think for most businesses you're almost better trying to be a nurse and triage in that you know the first step really is to identify what is the seven levers for your business, you know, an e-commerce store, you know, prospects of the people who add stuff to their shopping cart in a retail store. It might be people who try and address in a, um, the telco business. It's the people who get the quotes. So, you know, identifying first what each of those seven levers are in your business. Generally, most people realize where the lowest hanging fruit is first, you know, back sort of taking this full circle when we started, you know, trying to figure out the the issues we had at the telco and figuring out what was our glass ceiling and, and why weren't we getting you know business growth, we we realised a massive hole for us was transactions per customer, in that we were literally, as I said, passing our customers on to our competitors to actually basically look after. So no one was ever coming back to us. So we you know identified that for us was the very first thing we needed to work on was to work out a way that we could get transactions per customers up and we did a whole bunch of staff and obviously now we've got a whole bunch of staff actually in the business in the, te- in the actual you know technical division of the, of the business you know for other people you know the the bartender guy his first thing was he realized that well i haven't looked at my margins for a while and he saved 20 grand so i think you know i think the biggest thing is the answer to the question is where do i start my general answer is do not start with suspects um, because that's the default response. It's challenge yourself a little bit. This whole thing isn't challenging in the greater sense, but challenge yourself a little bit to not kind of go where you, you normally do. Um, go where the lowest hanging fruit is. And also, you know, uh, the argument a lot of people make, which I think is a good one, is that, you know, you you have people in your world right now. There's already people, you know, a number of some description transacting with you. You've already got a bunch of past customers that you can go back to straight away with some transactions type um, play. You've already got people in your store today, right now. How do you get them to to buy the the, the fries? You know, I think you know it's easy to think to grow. You need new, but often to grow, you just need to grow, and you can grow what already exists. Right on. Is there one of the levers that seems to have or, or be more important in terms of overall long-term impact? Well, I don't think so because effectively, you know, no matter which of the seven you actually increase by 10%, it effectively has the same bottom line effect. It's, it's once you get them all working together that the compounding effect really kicks in. So, you know, I think, you know, the, there's the eight old, or the, you know, the overused adage of, you know, it's easier sell to, it's easier to sell to an existing customer than a new one. Uh, and, you know, it's true. Really, so it is true. So, yeah, transactions, you could probably make a pretty good argument is the one that's going to have um, the most impact because it should be easier to get people to come back and buy again and increase your transactions per customer because they already have a relationship to you then to get new customers and new conversions because you've got to get new people through the door so that's you know it's a bit cliche but it's probably true um you know conversions you know getting increasing your conversion rate can make a massive difference you know pretty easily um but i you know i think yeah i'd like to say that you know well whatever's going to be the easiest for you to implement is where you should start um but transactions if you if you force me to say an answer i probably would say transactions is probably the the one that's going to have the most impact because you have a relationship already get them back yeah so more transactions per customer um which i want to say is different than 
items per transaction. You know, it's, mm. So if somebody's in your store, they're buying two things and you up selling to add a third one and that's different than the n- total number of transactions from that customer over the lifetime of that relationship, which uh, ideally you want both and all seven because um, they add up. So one of the interesting twists in the book I thought was using the seven levers as a filter to help make better use of our time. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, in our business, you know, we, again, you know, realize at some some point in the journey that, you know, if we're doing stuff that we can't really identify which lever it fits and, and supports and, and, and improves, it's a distraction and not actually helping. So, I, you know, that kind of was something that we kind of just, you know, grew over time realizing um, that, yeah, you know, if we're doing something in our business to think it's going to grow the business, if we can't see what impact it's going to have on any of those seven levers, then it's not really going to have an impact on the bottom line because the seven levers are what drives the profit. So we started to realize that the seven levers could also be used as a filter, as you said, Tyler, in that, well, okay, let's, we're thinking of this new tactic in the business to use. You know, we've watched a webinar on, you know, the importance of running webinars or we've, you know, heard some crazy guy screaming on social media that everybody should have a social media account and be on Snapchat or whatever it might be. And we sort of realized, well, hang on, okay, let's look at this and see how that tool, that tactic can actually drive a 10% win in, in, in the business. And if we can't figure out how it fits, we're not going to do it, you know. So in our you know core businesses, we're B two B. We sell physical, real world stuff to real world other small businesses: phone systems, headsets, conference phones, phone bills, that kind of stuff. So we look at social media and go, okay, from from our business, our telco business, how does social media fit? Everyone's screaming that everyone should be on social media. All right, well let's figure out how it fits. You know, we sell in a very geographical based areas with offices up and down the east coast of Australia. So we're, we're broad in terms of our general focus, but let's think social media. Social media is a global thing. You know, how many people are we going to have? How many suspects can we get? How much? How can we drive new suspects with social media? If we had a social media account like on Instagram, does, is Instagram really going to get more suspects for a phone system business? Yeah, probably not. All right, well, let's, let's put that aside. Is it going to get us more prospects? Well, no, because for us, it's people who actually speak to our sales team, have a sales meeting, get a quote. They're our definitions of, of prospects. Well, you can't really have a sales meeting on Instagram. doesn't help. Conversions. Can we sell more with Instagram? Nope. And we work through the seven levers and try and figure out, does Instagram or social media in our business affect any of them? And we couldn't see it, you know. People argue, well, you know, if you keep in contact and touch points through social media, um, you know, you might increase your transactions per customer. Yeah, maybe. But do you really think you're going to follow a telco business on social media? You know, what are we going to share photos of different handsets and phones? It's like, nah. So, you know, for us, it was like, okay, this doesn't work for us. It's that filter. Um, yet, you know, for another business, like a let's say a retail bike store as an example let's use the same filter well probably you're going to have the same sort of things is a lot of the different levers aren't going to be affected by social media and you know the argument i make in the book to kind of you know give give part of it away is that well you can still use social media as a platform to drive suspects without having a social media account because if you had a social media account you're going to have followers from all over the world and no one from argentina is going to buy a bike from melbourne um, yet you can run advertising on a social media platform targeting people who like cycling in your geographical area. So you can still get the power of social media working for you to drive suspects without all the crap of having to actually maintain a normal social media account. And you know that has been a really good insight for us and I think it's helped a lot of other people to go, yeah, okay, well, when I see an idea, whether it's a – you know, do I need a website? Do I need to run webinars in my business? Do I need to do direct mail? Do I need to do whatever the heck it is? It's like, well, let's put it through this filter and in this tactic, where does it fit inside the strategy of the seven levers? Because the seven levers is our framework, it's our roadmap, it's our strategy and our direction. And if we come through a tactic, the tactic's got to fit within the strategy first. And I think that's been quite helpful for a lot of people. Otherwise, they are just running from tactic to tactic. Because um, they read the sales letter, they they watch the sales video, they get excited about 
that particular thing, but they don't kind of realize where does it fit in my business model, in my customer journey, in my seven levers effectively. Right. Uh, so you've given us some examples of how you've used these for your telco business. I'm kind of curious, how are you using them to promote the book and, and grow you know, book sales and the launch and everything? Yeah, in terms of social media or the seven levers in general? Uh, seven levers in general. Like, what's, How does that apply to this particular case? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, to give you an example, we've got a few different kind of ways it's working. So um, to, I guess you've asked me the question, so it's going to be a blatant plug, <laughs> is that one of the ways we're getting suspects for the book is I did a deal with the publishers to do something a little bit creative in that I'm doing a bunch of podcast interviews exactly like this. And we're doing an offer where it's, okay, so suspects, to get the exposure and people are aware of the book, it's doing podcast interviews. It's one of the tactics to drive an increase in suspects. Then to get prospects, we made, we made an offer. We've done a pretty cool deal with the publisher to say, if people you know pre-order the book or in certain circumstances order the book directly from us after it's released, we're going to give away the audio book early. So you can pre-order the book or order the book online whenever, you, whenever it is, and we'll send you the audio book instantly to actually um, consume. You know, podcasters generally listen to stuff more than read. That's the nature of the platform. So we, we do pages like, you know, cadencebook.com forward slash build cycle. Blatant plug, but you asked me the question. <laughs> cadencebook.com forward slash build cycle. And, and that's our prospects. We, we get people to go there and, and read the offer page. And the offer page basically says, you know, order the book from us. And we will give you instant access to the audio book. You don't have to wait for the postman to deliver the content. You can get the download straight away. So that's our, our you know, prospects is people to actually take action from the podcast and go to the website. Conversions is people who actually buy the, the book itself. Um, you know, items per sale, you know, I'm going to be blatant here. I don't have an upsell or cross-sell in this book. So I, it's a bit of a listen to what I say, not what I do in this particular instance because I don't have upsells, cross-sells for the book at the moment, maybe doing at some point, but really the book is just, I said before, it's not a profit center. This is not a business per se for me. It is just something to try and help people. So there is no um, you know, items per sale or, or you know that sort of stuff. You know, a lot of authors do it, and this is you know something we we could have done, and we made a conscious decision not to. But items per sale, we could have said here, buy the book, and the upsell could have been buy the audio book for more money. We could have done the bundle package, you know, buy the book by itself or buy the bundle with the 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 course and the audio and the Kindle in one big bundle. So that there are ways we could have easily packaged this up to have that items per sale um, process going in terms of that we could have had the kindle book the paperback and the hardcover that's exactly an item an items average price play we're sort of driving people to the hardcover to increase our uh average item price because we are selling a much higher price in the paperback so that's the kind of stuff that we can do around that transactions per customer we are going to do a bit of a home study course at some point when i find the time so we'll then go back to all the people who bought the book uh to go and try and sell them a home study course, which will be a bit more in-depth training around the seven levers. How do you implement it? Here are some ideas. Here's some frameworks. Here's some case studies, some swipe material you can go and take to implement 10% wins in various areas straight away. So that's going to be our transactions per customer. Uh, our margins is just making sure our marketing is cheap. Doing podcasts don't cost me money. It's just about time. So rather than sort of paying for Facebook ads to drive suspects to the offer page, we're doing podcasts. That's a way to keep our margins low. We chose to do the book with a hybrid publisher rather than a traditional publisher. You know, I started working initially on this book with Ryan Holiday and his brass check crew, and we shopped it around some traditional publishers, and just the deal wasn't quite right. So I didn't want to self-publish because it was too much of a hassle with everything else I've got going on. So we chose a hybrid publisher, which basically takes care of all the takes care of all the logistics part of the book delivery, you know, the, the typesetting, getting into bookstores, all that sort of crap that I just didn't want to worry with. So it gave me more margin than I would have with a traditional deal. So they're the kind of high-level ways we've sort of applied this to to the book and the book project. Yeah. So you, you bring up an interesting point in that whole process of that when you said transactions per customer, that down the road you will contact the people who bought the book. And I think that's something where if you're not – already capturing your customer data or some way of contacting them in the future, then that needs to be implemented immediately because there's a lot of what you're talking about that can't be done if you have no way of directly communicating with your customer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead. 
was just going to say, yeah, so direct sales ourselves, obviously an easy way to get the customer's details. We've also got a couple of calls to actions in the book. I haven't done the whole, you know, crazy screaming, give me your email address every second page. But I think there's two calls to action in the book. One where we've got an online calculator that people can go and use and actually like plug in their current numbers and, and play with what different um, scenarios look like in terms of, you know, different spikes in one level versus other levers and stuff like that. Uh, and then at the end, we've done a, a really small sort of, you know, hour long, you know, we'll call it a training, but it's, it's just a, it's a, an introductory mini course almost that we say, hey, thanks for buying the book. If you want to, you know, go through this mini course of the six steps to, imp- to start implementing the seven levers, um, feel free to go and download it over here. So we have some some offers there to get people to read the book to come and, you know, download those those things to then we'll have their contact details so we can have an automated sequence in place to to build the rapport, build the relationship and try and sell them home study courses or direct consulting that I do a bit of. So there is definitely some some repeat business options out there. Yeah, cool. All right, so I've got three questions that I like to ask everybody to kind of wrap up the interview. And one of them is normally what, you know, with you running your business, what are some challenges that keep you up at night? But I want to ask you this in a different way. Implementing this the seven levers, what do you think are maybe one or two of the hardest things about implementing them in your business or if what you've seen other people struggle with implementing into their businesses? Mm, good question. I think it's a discipline. I think it's a discipline to use this as your framework and dedicate the time to it. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time. It's not crazy time. It's just saying, okay, every Monday afternoon is going to be my three-hour window of seven levers time. And I'm going to work on my business, and this is the framework I'm going to use for my focus. And I'm going to sit down and go, okay, first step, I'm going to spend next Monday afternoon for three hours, I'm going to try and clarify what the seven levers are for my business. Next Monday, I'm going to then go and capture everything we're currently doing to actually drive each of these levers. Next following Monday, I'm going to go and you know implement one 10% win. And I think that's the hardest part is, is, is having the discipline to say, yep, this is going to be my strategy this is going to be my framework. Although most business owners, when you ask them, what is your strategy and, and blueprint and roadmap to, to focus when you are working, quote unquote, on your business? They don't have one. They're like, oh, we're just trying to do, do lots of stuff and grow the business. Well, you need a framework. You need, you need a focus point. So I think the hardest part is that is just getting the discipline of, yep, this is going to be my regular time to work you know, on my business and I'm going to use this strategy to do it. Okay. So my follow-up to that is usually, is there a product or service you wish existed to help Overcome or alleviate some of the challenges. (laughs) Yeah, by the the book. book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it sounds like discipline. You're right. Discipline is so hard, and that's. um, I'm reading on some of the the other thing, whether it's anything, you know, getting in shape or eating right or you know, quit drinking, whatever it is that you want to do. It's. It sounds so, like overly simple to the point where people don't believe it, but it's you just got to do it, right? You put it on there on your calendar or whatever, and then you stick to it. Something that, you know, in hindsight, I probably didn't articulate um, in the book uh, enough is that, so the, the book is based on a true story. So when I was training for my first Ironman, the the coach I chose was actually my high school PE teacher who just ironically happened to, you know, 10 years later, open a bike store across the road from my telco. Um, so it's a really cool little story. It's one of those, you know, you couldn't write these things type scenario. And I could have easily, I raced triathlons pretty seriously in the sprint distance space when I was at university. Um, and then I made a deal with myself that I'm going to do an Ironman before I was 30. So I got to 29 and went, holy crap, I better keep this promise and started training. I could have easily just gone, okay, look, I can just go onto YouTube, go on the web and download all these tactics, all these training sessions. I could have easily downloaded, here's a you know, a bunch of workouts that would, you know, a, a marathon training workout. I could have downloaded a, some, you know, bike workouts or some swim training sessions. And I could have gone and just been tactical and just gone, I'm going to do all this different stuff that kind of, you know, people say in isolation can help you get to a marathon or a Ironman or, you know, a 180K bike ride. I could have done all those things just sporadically. But I think everyone just knows that that would be the most stupidest thing to do. If you're trying to do your very first Ironman triathlon, you need to have all these tactics work together. You need a training plan. And it's kind of obvious, yeah? Like people go, yeah, of course you need a coach. You need need someone to actually sort of have it all together. Otherwise, you're just, you know, self-coaching off YouTube. You're not going to survive. You're going to blow up. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to get injured. You're going to, you know, not be able to do it. So you go to a, a triathlon coach to say, okay, James, I've got 20 weeks to get to my Ironman. I've been pretty unfit the last couple of years. Give me a plan. Give me a strategy. Give me the the roadmap of what my session is going to look like. 
And you do that and you follow that and you get to the finish line. Yet in business, so many people do the opposite. They are. They're going to YouTube. They're downloading tactical workouts, you know, strategy or not, not even strategies, but tactics from the web and just randomly place them all together and hope they're going to actually get to the finish line. But the key is that underlying here is the roadmap of where you should be focusing and how all these tactics fit together to get you to the finish line. And that's effectively what we're trying to do with the book is give people that, that underlying you know, roadmap to, to, to focus on. I like that. And I'm looking forward to implementing a lot of these, or hopefully all of them in my own businesses. And yeah, that's my first step. It is. I literally just finished the book last night. Um, and so that's my next step is to sit down and write it down and figure out what are these things for my business? Because honestly, like it, I have no idea. And that's, I think that's the problem is so many of us, we get so caught up in the day to day. It's like everything else. You know, you, you, you're working in the business and not on the business. And so I'm looking forward to working on the business and I will let you know how it goes. Awesome, man. Awesome. And I, I do think as well, there's, there's plenty of people who kind of have read the E-Myth and, and a bit of a Michael Gerber disciple and go, yeah, you know, I need to know, I need to work on my business. I understand working on your business is the way to grow. I need to get out from under the hood of the car and, and, you know, work on my mechanical company. Yet when, what is, how do you work on a business? Like it's just, like working on a business, what does that mean? It means not sort of on the tools, sure. But again, where do I focus my attention? What do I actually do when I'm working, quote unquote, on the business? And uh, and that seems to be a missing gap for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, they can grab your book and it's a good place to start, I think. So, uh, Pete, man, thanks so much for your time. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Tyler, thanks for having me, buddy. Really enjoy it. Love the show. So, honored to be on here, man. Appreciate it. I'll keep this recap short. We all know we need to work on our business more often, but it's so easy to get stuck just plugging away in our business for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. Pete's book serves as a guide, teaching you which levers to look at to grow your business with practical tips for how to improve each of them. Think of it as a field guide for growing your profits that saves you from trying to figure it all out yourself. For me, one of the biggest practical takeaways is just using the system as a filter. Now, I can think through anything. Now, I can think through anything I'm about to do in terms of how it's going to grow my business. If it's not, it's put on the back burner in favor of something that will have more impact. If it will help me grow, it becomes a priority. Next time you're about to chase some whiz-bang idea, put it through the filter and be critical. Will it really move the needle? Check the show notes for a link to get a free audiobook version when you buy the hard copy, which I highly recommend. And while you're there, hit that link to leave us a rating and review on your favorite player too. Why? Because it really helps me grow this podcast for you, and you could win one of several copies of Cadence that we're giving away. Just head to thebuildcycle.com slash podcast, click on this episode, and check the links at the bottom. Thanks, and thanks for listening. Here's hoping you're racking up the wins. Until next time, keep building.